This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Luke chapter 6, I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. This is God's Word. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Let's pray. Lord, we do uh, ask that that song would be our prayer, that we would surrender all to you now, especially before a passage like this that just displays your authority in calling people to yourself, doing much more in and through them than they could ever comprehend, ever do on their own. Lord, we pray that you would meet with us and show us that that's how you work in us and with us. And so we, we surrender to you. We want to surrender our hearts to your word. Lord, we want to live dependent lives that look like Jesus. We want to trust in your sovereignty, Lord, even when you ordain hard, difficult, challenging things in our lives that we don't understand. We want to surrender all to you. We want to trust you. Lord, we pray that you would guide us as we look to your word to see the beauty that you show through weakness, even in the local church, that you put people together here to covenant together in one body in a particular way to honor you. Just we pray that that would happen here at UPBC. Let your word equip and build us to that end. Let us seek to be faithful to you and be found faithful. We ask for your help as we look to your word now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The title of a recent article that I came across this week in Forbes magazine caught my eye. The title is this, How to Fight Phobo, the Fear of Being Ordinary. That's what Phobo stands for, Fear of Being Ordinary. The article begins this way, you're following the rules, you check all the boxes, you have a routine, you have a budget, but you wonder, is this all there is? You come home after work, you see other people doing compelling, fascinating things, you say to yourself, I wish that was me. You're afraid, you're boring, beige, standardized, basic. You, my friend, have a case of phobo, fear of being ordinary. Another place I saw uh, the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, interesting resource, has given phobo a label, coinophobia. It describes the onset this way. When you look back over your life and try to put, put it down on paper, you can see more of it now than ever before, and it seems somehow diminished and humble, almost quaint. 
You begin scanning your life, looking for something interesting, beautiful. You see an ordinary house, an ordinary street, looks smaller than you remember. You once had wild dreams and obstacles and risks looming all around you, but now they look smaller too. You remember giants, goddesses, and villains. Now all you see is ordinary people assembled at their tiny classrooms and workspaces, each of us moving around in little steps like tokens on a game board. There's so many of these token moments that are supposed to represent some other thing, and you keep adding them up as if there's something you forgot to count, some stash of glory that fell off the back of the truck, or maybe you were never in it to begin with, as if you knew even then that this wasn't the world you expected. There's some truth there in thinking that look over our lives and, and wondering, is there any meaning to it? My wife calls it a midlife crisis. Uh, when I found myself driving a, a standard shift Mustang car the other day and realizing I've been driving wrong my whole life. 59 is not really a highway, it's a racetrack. Anyway, it was a great day. We should remember that wasting your life is a real possibility. So if you haven't read John Piper's little book, Don't Waste Your Life, it's really cheap. I would encourage you to read it. It's helpful to spur you on to thinking about what you're doing with this breath of life that we have. But I want you just to be careful not to assume the world's definition of making the most of your life. We want to look to the God's definition. You want to look to the Bible's definition. And the Bible shows us that there's something beautiful and even powerful in the ordinary, even in weakness, faithfulness. It's actually the occasion, the platform for God to show and display his power. Abraham Lincoln said, God must have liked ordinary people because he made so many of them. I'm sure people that heard that were like clapping and then feeling insulted at the same time. When Jesus chose who would represent him for eternity, we would who would, who would be the very foundational pillars of the church, he chose some of the most unimpressive, weak, uneducated, and unqualified people on the planet. That's our passage this morning. And they, by his power, turned the world upside down. Not by becoming famous or influ- influential in their, own, in their own right for their own sake, but simply through ordinary faithfulness. Paul uh, refers to it as living peaceful and quiet lives. 1 Timothy 2.22. So we're going to think together about Jesus' calling of the twelve today from Luke 6 and what it says about Jesus' power at work in and through the ordinary. We can add this to the list of uh, Luke's resume that he's building to Jesus. Jesus has authority, all authority to heal the sick. We've learned to cast out demons, to teach God's word authoritatively, to forgive sins to enforce binding interpretations and decisions about the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He has authority here we see to call, to commission, to equip the apostles. These are his special authoritative messengers who would, who would suffer for him. Many, most of them die for him, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So what we see in this calling scene is that Jesus shows his glory through ordinary people. How does he do that? Well, we'll make three observations if you're taking notes that we see just from this passage. Number one, prayer. Through prayer. 
Number two, a trust in God's sovereignty. A trust in God's sovereignty. And then finally, number three, an embrace of weakness. Jesus shows his glory through the ordinary by prayer, a trust in God's sovereignty, and an embrace of weakness. Let's begin with thinking about prayer, particularly Jesus' pattern of prayer that we've seen in Luke's gospel. Just to situate us briefly, here where we are in Luke, we we pick up at a time when Jesus has been um, causing quite a stir publicly. He's teaching, healing, casting out demons. Many are coming to hear him, and then some are coming to officially give themselves to him as students and disciples like Levi, the tax collector, and Peter, and James, and John. Those are, those are, they've been called to Jesus. But many others are following him as well, this wider group of disciples. But not everyone is happy about Jesus. His hometown synagogue tried to throw him off a cliff and kill him when he was invited as a guest preacher. Pharisees and scribes are now plotting to how they might destroy him. And so the tension in and around his ministry is building. That's the backdrop for verse 12. Let's look there again. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. This isn't the first time in Luke's gospel that we've seen Jesus' habit of getting away to pray. Earlier in chapter 4, Jesus spent most of the night healing people in Capernaum. And then we read in chapter 442, and when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. And then when he had healed a leper, crowds rushed around him and, and he, almost to the point where he couldn't move and minister. But we read in chapter 5 verse 16, he would draw away to desolate places to pray. That was Jesus' pattern. And, and here we find him going to a mountain uh, to get along to pray all night long. An all-night prayer meeting. He persevered in prayer. So Jesus regularly prayed. And then here, there seems to be a, a special emphasis. And we would assume it's because of this big decision that's before him in commissioning and calling his apostles. And so I just want to lean into this a moment with you this morning. This picture of Jesus and his dependence upon the Father. And I, and I don't want you to hear... Only, friends, if Jesus prayed, how much more should we pray? I think there's value in that. I think there's truth in that. I don't think that's the springboard for us into a deeper, more life-giving, love, robust prayer life. So I want to to encourage you to look at it a different way. Not from a place of guilt. I don't pray enough. I I should pray like Jesus. I want you to just look at Jesus. Look at what Jesus does. Look at who he is. He's fully man. That means, friends, he's like us in every way except sin. He's like us. He is, yes, God in the flesh. But Jesus sets aside his divine attributes, placing them in the Father's care. Attributes like his omniscience, omnipotence, giving them over to the Father that he is completely dependent Now, in this ministry on earth, upon the Father and the Holy Spirit for everything. Jesus is the most dependent individual to ever walk the planet. That's why he prays. Prayer is everything to Jesus. In John 8 we read, 
I do nothing on my own authority, Jesus says. Nothing on my own authority. The authority to create the earth and the universe. Jesus does nothing on his own authority. But I speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So, so how does Jesus learn from the Father? How does he do the things pleasing to him? How does he model a perfect picture of humanity? It is this sweet, regular, unhindered communion with the Father. That's what humanity is meant to do, to be. And since it's his habit, it's his routine, when something big comes up, a big decision comes up, it shouldn't surprise us that he leans into prayer all the more. Who's going to be the foundation of the church? Yeah, that's an all-night prayer meeting. But he's not first making a pro and con sheet about each one. He's praying and praying and praying. Maybe he's bringing each disciple before the Father. Laying out his case for each one before the Father all night long. But we know this, his actions come after long communion with God. And communion with God is not something that he does in emergencies only. It is who he is. And so this is where I want to just flip the application from guilt to hope. Jesus' death and resurrection free us to do this too. They free us. They enable us to do this. Our flesh is naturally Independent. Have you, parents, have you ever had a, a child that wanted to walk the dog and the dog was bigger than the child, but they wanted to walk the dog all by themselves? And you know this is going to be a train wreck, but they're so fiercely independent. Give me the leash. You know, I want to stir it. I want to do it. That is, that's who we are, isn't it? We want to act independently of God. That is the essence of our sin. That's what's working against you in your prayer life. Not mainly your lack of discipline. It's remaining sin. And beloved, it's sin that Jesus has conquered. That Jesus has destroyed on the cross. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So when we... When we apply the gospel that way, we see that Jesus has cleared the way for us to the Father. That's not just on paper, a theological truth. That's a, that results in a lived experience where we get to go to God. We, we get God. He brings us to God. Galatians 2.20, I have been, Paul says, crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life now that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, so friends, this is the gospel that Jesus brings us to God through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his bodily resurrection, that faith in him brings us to God. We are forgiven of our sin. We're given a new righteousness that was Christ alone. If you don't know that righteousness, if you don't know Jesus... We want to call you to turn from your sins and put your faith and trust in Him. Follow Him and know true life. Know the God that made you and loves you. 
If you're here, if you're a Christian, I want you to apply it and think of it as it relates to, to prayer. That the flesh that's holding me back from prayer, that sinful flesh, Paul says is crucified. Now it's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives within me. And so, so we're called to pray from a place of dependence, not obligation. Dependence on God, not obligation. Joy, not guilt. So Jesus isn't praying because he knows it's what he's supposed to do. It is his life. And friends, it's our life. He's freed us to God to go to him in prayer. When we realize our need, we understand, don't we, that prayer is a natural response. When we realize that the the pathway has been cleared to the Father, prayer becomes this delightful, life-giving thing that we're made for. So if you want to pursue Christ-likeness, we're going to pursue dependent prayer. One author said, we're never more like Jesus when we humble ourselves to pray, especially to pray for people to go into the world and preach the gospel. That's what Jesus is doing all night long. Praying for those that are going to the world and preach the gospel. This is what the early church did. They understood this. They saw Jesus' model. They repeated that model. Before laying on of hands of the first deacons in Acts 6, the church prayed. Before sending out Barnabas and Saul on mission, the church prayed and fasted, Acts 13. In Acts 14, 23, Paul and Barnabas did the same thing when they appointed elders in every church. They did it with prayer and fasting. So Jesus didn't say, apart from me, you can do something. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So friends, I just want to call us to prayer. I want us to call us to prayer, both generally and specifically. Generally, that we would be marked by our dependence upon God in prayer, both individually and then as a corporate body. That when we see prayer meetings on the schedule, we don't, we don't just see that translated as optional. When, when we, 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 we sense the need that we have as a congregation to do the impossible, how will we do it apart from prayer? And in our own lives, kind of trying to apply the gospel and coming to God in this way in prayer for joy and fellowship with Him. Friends, generally, as a church, we want to be a people marked by our need for God and the way that it manifests itself in prayer. Then I also want to call us to a specific targeted week of prayer this, this coming week. Bobby mentioned this week um, we're preparing to, to call a new staff member uh, this coming weekend, Lord willing. So Matt Noble is going to be with us, as he mentioned, Friday and Saturday nights. And then he's going to be leading music on Sunday, uh, next Sunday. And then that, that evening we're going to vote to call him to join us um, on staff. But friends, this isn't a business. It's not a college football team that brings in a, a new offensive coordinator. This is a church. And apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. So I'm asking you as members of UPBC to set aside this coming week for prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. You've been given some information about Matt as it relates to his job description and some more information about about him, um, about from his resume and other things. You know the needs of our congregation. Think about where God has been taking us as a church. Think about the elders prayer and and recommending this direction to go and 
pray. Pray. Pray that God would make it clear. Ask God to help us see his hand. You're free, of course, to organize your prayer time and your fasting as you are led to do that. But we're going to have a set-aside time on Wednesday during lunch. If you want to join us here in the choir room, uh, 1130 to 1230, come and go. Just a time of prayer. Love for you to join, join me. I'll be over there right behind me uh, praying for God uh, to lead us in our, in our time. We need the Lord. He's promised to build his church and we can do nothing apart from him. Let's learn to pray from Jesus. Let's also learn to emulate Jesus' trust in God's sovereignty. That's our next observation that we'll mention here. Number two, a trust in God's sovereignty. This next scene is just beautiful. Jesus has been with the Father all night. And when the sun comes up, he rises and just kind of goes into action. So there's this peace, isn't there, that comes from spending time with the Lord in prayer that leads to action. Does prayer feel like the most unproductive thing in your life sometimes? Just the most unproductive thing that I can do. But on the contrary, it is making us more like Christ, strong in our trust in God's sovereign power. And we see that here with Jesus. Uh, Look again at verse uh, 13. And when he came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. We don't know how many disciples Jesus had to choose from. um, But it is from this larger pool of people that Jesus chooses these twelve That word apostle just means messenger in its simplest form. That would be the lowercase a, apostle. Someone commissioned to carry a message, to perform an unofficial duty on someone else's behalf. A modern example would be someone who has power of attorney that authorizes kind of a personal representative to sign legal documents or the authority of an ambassador to sign a treaty for his country. But this calling from Jesus is going to be seen for what it is as the church develops with this is actually, these guys are going to be capital A apostles, these unrepeatable, this, this unique group that's going to serve as the foundation for the church. So in Acts, when the apostles are seeking to replace uh, Judas, the qualifications for, the, for an apostle are these, someone who walked with Jesus from the time of John's baptism until he was taken and crucified uh, and a witness to his resurrection. So that's what I mean by unrepeatable. Like, no, you can't volunteer for this position. Capital A, Apostle. The, the offices are, are closed. It's unique. Not for today. These are Jesus' official messengers and his representatives. And the number 12 is significant because of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is going to say later in Luke's gospel, Luke 22, to his disciples, to his apostles, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table. Something we're going to preview later this morning at the Lord's Supper. And in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So we're going to say more about this kind of theme next week. But what Jesus is doing here is he's instituting a new Israel. The apostles are representing this new, these twelve apostles, this new Israel. That is the, the church. And Jesus constituting, an, he is he's showing himself to be a new and better Moses. Notice he's going to the mountain. And in a minute he's going to come off the mountain. And he's going he's to speak in a very similar way that Moses did at Sinai. And he's going to bring with him a new and better covenant. 
But these men are chosen by Jesus. They didn't decide to become apostles. They are chosen. And, and it's that reality that actually serves, I think, as the greatest comfort for them in the way that they, they find themselves later in this ministry in trouble and under persecution, struggling to endure, to believe, struggling with their own sins and failures. To be reminded, this is not my idea. This is not something that I initiated in my own strength. It was Jesus that chose them And Jesus would see to it that they made it to the end. Friends, election is such a great comfort in that sense to God's people. That we are are kept by God's grace. Listen to how Jesus prays for his, his disciples in John 17. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus guarded them. Jesus kept them. None were lost except for one. Did you notice Luke's description of Judas there in verse 16? And Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Sometimes in leadership context, I'll hear People try to encourage leaders and say, look, even Jesus didn't get it all right. Even Jesus picked a guy who was kind of a loser, who who betrayed him. My friends, we see that the selection of Judas Iscariot is not a mistake by Jesus. It's this intentional, guided by the Holy Spirit decision that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus knew who Judas was. He knew what Judas would do. We read in John 6, 64, but there are some of you, Jesus says, who do not believe, parentheses, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So God ordained Judas to be a disciple and Judas sinned in such a way that it would have been better for him never to have been born. Both of those things are true. Two realities held together in the Bible. I don't think it meant for us to untangle them, but so that we can step back and acknowledge that God is bigger than we are. And his ways are higher than our ways. There's such a a mingling of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Even the way Luke describes it, he, he became a traitor. This is ordained from the foundation of the world, but Judas started off great. And then he became a traitor. Friends, you do not want a God that defers to you to rule the universe, to rule your life. You and I know deep down we want and need a sovereign God. It's how we make it through suffering. We don't want a God that's not sovereign when we're suffering. It's how we, we, we trust that my, my situation right now hasn't escaped God's notice. It's how we keep from despairing over unanswered prayer. To know that God is sovereign. It's how we make it through tragedies that seem to suck the light out, life out of us. Peter, again, gives us life-giving words. 1 Peter 5, 6-7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because He cares 
for you. God's hand is sovereign and mighty, and it doesn't always make sense to us. Pain and suffering will always attend our life. Unanswered questions will be there. And so hear God's word and seek by God's grace to walk it out. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, knowing that he is not only sovereign, but good. He cares for me. There's a time coming in God's sovereign plan where he will exalt me. I don't know when that is. This life or the next. But I can cast my worries on him in prayer because he cares for me. He cares for you. He doesn't say seek out a a pain-free Worry-free, stress-free, responsibility-free life. Avoid stress at all costs. Just take your cares to the sovereign one, even the one who led Jesus to choose Judas. He cares for us. Finally, let's note one more thing from the passage. And uh, it has to do with an embrace of our weakness. Number three, an embrace of our weakness. So Jesus chooses these 12 from a group of all the other disciples. So we know at least one thing about these these men. They were disciples before they were apostles. They were followers of Jesus already. But what else? Why did he choose these guys? What set them apart? Have you ever tried to shop your resume around and get on LinkedIn and see what can you do to shine that up and make yourself look as attractive as possible? What, What did they do? What's their resume look like? We look at these lists in the Gospels. They're not all the same, but we, there's some certain things that, are, that, are, that we do see that are common as you look through. Peter is always listed first. Judas is always listed last in these lists, except for the place in Acts where Judas is being replaced. So I think symbolically we see there, you know, Peter is the leader. He's referred to as Simon here, but he's going to be renamed by Jesus, Peter the Rock. He's the leader. But not just because he has an MBA or an MDiv, or always because he does the right thing, he is kind of the lead struggler and in some ways the lead sinner. But Jesus is going to work powerfully through him. He's a fisherman. That's his qualification. As are Andrew, his brother, James and John. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder, because their their temper, desire to throw down fire from heaven. Those, those four, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, always appear first in the list. They're kind of this inner circle, prominent list, prominent group. And then there's always these three groups of four, kind of headlined by the lead positions of Peter, Philip, and James, the son of Alphaeus. Philip, we don't know a lot about him. He appears briefly in the New Testament. Kind of his highlight is bringing Nathaniel to Jesus, which is great. But he just seems to be a pretty typical disciple, often struggling to, under, struggling to understand what Jesus is, is saying and doing. That's a typical disciple. Bartholomew is uh, often identified as Nathaniel. Uh, many of the disciples have two names, are identified by two names. We've already seen Matthew's story in chapter 5. He's, he's called Levi there from, as being a tax collector. Uh, Thomas, that name means twin. And he's got another name, Didymus, that he's also known by. You see him, Didymus, in some of the other places. What's he most known for? His doubt. His doubt of Jesus, whether he truly was raised from the dead. James, the son of Alphaeus. This is not James, the brother of Jesus. He's not gonna, James, the brother of Jesus, is not going to believe really until Jesus is risen from the dead. None of his siblings believed. Uh, and there's this other Simon 
who's described as a, as a zealot. This, this group of zealots are Jewish national, nationalists. They kind of take this radical position to overthrow Rome. He's pretty close to this kind of a religious fanatic, maybe terrorist kind of guy. And you see this, this, the team dynamics at work. You've got um, Levi, Matthew, who worked for the government. And now you have a guy who comes in who wants to destroy the government. And they're going to now work together. They're going to both follow Jesus together. What a picture, right? Finally, you've got these two Judases that are named. I already mentioned Judas Iscariot. His name points to being from this region in Judea. He's the only non-Galilean disciple. But ironically, I think that that's what his name really means. But ironically, you've got these other terms that develop that describe Iscariot. The Aramaic term meaning false one, a Latin word meaning dagger man or assassin. Uh, later, when the other Judas is described, he's described as not Iscariot. So not that Judas, a different Judas. Um, the other Judas, many would say, is Thaddeus, who's listed in other lists of the disciples. Unknown, really, uh, from the other, other than this mention. I just want to ask you, does that sound like the all-star team? Not really. Right? We, we, what do we know about these guys? They're uneducated. They're all poor except for Matthew. Not especially connected in society. I love how, how uh, some of the disciples, uh, Peter and John, are recognized in Acts 4. We read this in Acts 4.13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they re- recognized that they had been with Jesus. So people saw Jesus and his power through these men. They were surprised that they were doing what they were doing. These are the ones that Jesus gathers in his inner circle to bring and spread the gospel globally. They had been with Jesus. His power is on display, not their abilities. Jesus would tell them things like this. John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These are the guys that wrote the New Testament, meant much of it. They preached sermons where thousands were converted. They were persecuted and killed. And their ministry would be abiding. It's abiding today, isn't it? We're talking about it today. We're reading and, and, and studying and preaching from the Bible Today, the church is still going. And and then John gives us a a preview of the the heavenly architecture that's going to have a mark of the apostles on it. Revelation 21, 14, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the apostles of the Lamb. These were nobodies. And Jesus worked through them to glorify His name. I think the apostle Paul Models this so well for us. What's it like to be a Christian? He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. If you had valuables in Paul's day, treasure, what you would do is hide them in these leaky, broken pots of clay because if a robber comes, well, he's not going to look there. Nobody's going to put a treasure there. Surely people would hide their treasure in something strong and secure and unbreakable. 
But that's not the way God works. He puts his treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay. That it might be seen all the more in lowly, ordinary, weak, unimpressive sinners would hold forth the answers to all of life's questions. Paul learned this personally. God told him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, he said, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Weakness is the occasion for God's power in our lives. The apostles are an example for that. So even though it looks like this ordinary, plain life, in reality, God is changing the world. That's the way he works today. Listen to Oswald Chambers. He said it well. God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment and reliance upon them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. And that's how God works, isn't it? It's how people see God's power through nobodies or through somebodies who say, it's not about me. It's nothing in me. They turn away from themselves that God would be on display through the ordinary. But if you look under the surface, under the hood, it's really not that ordinary. Just peek under and you'll see something much more cosmic. Uh, One time Paul Paul Washer wrote about someone asking him what he did for a living. And uh, one way to answer that, if you're Paul Washer, would be to say, I speak at conferences I write books, etc. But this is how he answered. He said, quote, I fight dragons. I fight dragons that oppress people and kill them and enslave them. I fight dragons. You may think it's a bit romantic. I don't care. That might be your problem. It's Paul Washer. You look at everything physically, don't you? That's why your life seems so boring. That's why you look at television to find some excitement. But there are people dying, children starving, oppression everywhere, wicked governments, bondage, slavery, everything you can imagine. Thousands of babies being murdered in the wombs of their own mothers. I fight dragons. That's our calling, brothers and sisters. Through God's strength, by his power. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we pray that your power would be on display in our lives. We pray that when we love one another and seek to serve one another, when we go through suffering and pain and hardship, Lord, that what would be revealed is the treasure that's in the jar. That we would always point to the treasure and others would see it shining in and through us. Lord, I pray that for the the preaching ministry at this church, the teaching ministry, the way that we serve the neighborhood, the way that we love and care for one another, that Christ would be exalted. 
Lord, we pray that we would be a people marked out by prayer, marked out by this dependence upon you with a great, wonderful trust, Lord, in your sovereignty and your promise to work even through the ordinary means of grace. We pray we bless that even now as we come to your table. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.